This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Kelsey Waddell, Senior Editor of Healthpayer Intelligence and Multimedia Manager at Extelligent Healthcare Media. And today we have with us Dr. Vivek Garg, Chief Medical Officer for Humana's Primary Care Organization, to talk a bit about primary care investment in today's healthcare system. So Dr. Garg, thank you so much for coming on to Healthcare Strategies today. Thank you, Kelsey. It's a privilege to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And before we dive into the meat of it, I want to kind of set the baseline by starting out and talking about the status of primary care investment today, because I know a lot has been happening. I'm sure there's a lot that's shifted in the past two years with the coronavirus pandemic. And so first off, how do we measure primary care investment? I, I know that there's been a bit of debate about this in the past couple of years about what should we be including in the definition of primary care when we're assessing primary care spend. And so I'm really curious what your take is on that subject. Yeah, thanks, Kelsey. I think it's a great question. And like you said, there's been such a tremendous amount of innovation and increased focus on primary care, particularly through the COVID pandemic which I think is one of the positive benefits we've seen of really grounding ourselves on what really matters to people's health and our population level outcomes. I think the term primary care is now being very broadly defined and overutilized to some degree. Mm -hmm. I want to draw a distinction between relationship-based primary care and services that fit within the paradigm or category of primary care. Right now, many parties in healthcare are using the term primary care to refer to things that are basically health screenings, lab services, urgent care services, really the bundle of things that you might get through primary care or now other channels. But I think that really misses out on the real definition of primary care, which is much more around relationships and long-term care. So I think of the definition of primary care encompassing a usual source of care from a clinician or clinician-led team that really meets the four Cs. They're available for first contact, the care is continuous and comprehensive, and it's coordinated. It could be virtual in some cases, it might be a hybrid approach, it's often in person, it could be delivered by family medicine practitioners, internists, sometimes obstetric and gynecology specialists, pediatricians, but really underneath the four Cs are two elements that I think are really foundational. One is that, your health is more than the transactions and services you get in your journey of healthcare. And people really need a trusted clinical team or clinical partner to guide their care holistically. We can't just look at each issue on its own. Somebody has to be your partner to look at the whole picture and help you put it together and make decisions clinically that make the most sense for you overall. Otherwise, you miss the forest for the trees. In primary care, we can't say it's not my issue. Everything is our issue for our patients' health. The second point underneath that, I think, is that behavior change is absolutely crucial and foundational to successful primary care. When you get a service, it's a service. You're not changing behavior. To change behavior, you need to have trust. To have trust, you have to have a relationship with a pattern of reliable interactions where there's exchange of value and you get to know each other and you can trust what's going to happen. I think we dramatically underestimate the consequences of having a low trust healthcare system, which I think is unfortunately what most people experience right now. So to get to your question about how we measure then, 
what investment in primary care looks like, I would look at all the healthcare spending and costs for the clinicians and clinical teams that meet that definition of primary care. They're the usual source of care for patients. They're comprehensive, first contact, continuous. They're responsible for coordinating it and encompass all the payments and services that they provide to their patients as a percent of total spend at healthcare costs. Excellent. Thank you. That is very helpful to start out with that and to have a better definition, not just of the measurement side, but of just primary care as a whole. That's a really important point about the relationship aspect. And so moving more into the payment side of things, the spend side of things, fee-for-service reimbursement for better, or you know, many of us would say for worse, is still a very core piece of this puzzle for primary care investment. And I was hoping you could share a little bit about how that affects patient engagement, patient re-engagement in primary care, how the fee-for-service reimbursement model impacts even lapses in primary care. Yeah, that's yeah, a great question, Kelsey. I mean, I think for better or worse, as you said, fee-for-service is the dominant way that healthcare services are paid for in our country, including primary care. And so any long-term durable solution is going to have to think about how fee-for-service evolves. I've been operating a little bit in a bubble. It's part of the reason I like our work at Center and Conviva as Humana's primary care organization, because we're essentially full risk. We're moving to full risk very ambitiously in all of our partnerships. You know, at the core of it, I think most clinicians want to do the right thing for their patients. And in primary care, people know that patient engagement, regular follow-up is absolutely foundational to how we should be caring for people. The problem with fee-for-service is that as a payment system, it's indifferent to engagement. You get the same billing code and rate if you see one patient versus another, whether it's a patient who you should be seeing more regularly or somebody who is scheduled to visit with you just to check in on a more minor issue. And so really the indifference of fee-for-service as a payment model has led to a structural passivity. Mm. So we have not built systems in fee-for-service that really proactively focus on engagement. So when you see a patient, you recommend when they should come back, but we often kind of leave it up to them. We don't really vary how much we should be seeing them as much as we do in the capitated world, which I'll talk about in a second. We send a referral to see a specialist, but we wait for the specialist note to come back about their consultation before we really follow up to understand what happened and what should happen next. And so it's not that clinicians aren't trying to do the right things for their patients. It's that fee-for-service doesn't add more oomph or heft behind building systems to foster more proactive engagement. If you look at the flip side under a full risk or a capitation model like we operated in my group, we're totally aligned around the clinical and financial stewardship. So engagement is our problem. It's not just the patient's problem. And you see that our group and other groups like us really focus on engagement. We have a metric called continuous engagement. We want to be seeing our seniors on average at least four to five times a year. We track that. We have robust data. We talk about it as a team. And we really closely manage to that. So we're building algorithms to find who's high risk or at risk of certain poor outcomes. We have whole structures and call systems and outreach structures around getting patients in when they need to be seen or us setting the cadence with them and then titrating it based on how they respond. And so we do things like provide transportation support. So all these mechanisms and levers are really fostered under a different payment model and they're not as well supported in fee-for-service. And that I think unfortunately leads to good intent 
but not enough structural support for practices to do what their clinician and patient's intent is because you can't do it all as the clinician and it can't all happen when you're in the room with the patient. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And you kind of have touched on this already, but there's the flip side of that model, value-based care, which a lot of stakeholders in the healthcare system have really touted as the solution or a solution in trying to move the needle on primary care investment. And so Could you talk a little bit more about that then? So what are some of the advantages and and disadvantages or or the challenges and opportunities that are in the value-based care model as it relates to primary care investment? Yeah, I mean, this is a big reason why I do the work personally that I've chosen to do Mm -hmm. professionally. I think primary care, in my mind, is absolutely the most impactful and underutilized lever we have nationally to change the health of our populations. And there's many, many, many studies, both in the US and globally that have shown that investment in primary care is highly correlated with better population health. And we're behind. People look at our country and say, we're spending twice or three times as much and our health outcomes at a very basic and core level have massive disparities and don't achieve rates that we see in other countries where there's been more investment in primary care. So when you talk about value-based care and value-based payment, you have no choice other than to start to focus on primary care. You have to think about how do we get upstream of people's health issues? How do we help them live healthier, longer, higher quality lives, not in the hospital if they don't need to be, or seeing 15 different specialists. I think specialists do tremendous work and have real expertise, but it's really about shifting the totality to be much more general and comprehensive and partnering with people where they live outside of facilities, outside of procedures, and trying to avoid those things if they're preventable. Some of my colleagues at Humana recently looked at primary care spend and saw that when we're working with groups in full risk, 15 to 17% of the healthcare dollar actually goes to that primary care group. The average is more like four to 7% of the healthcare dollar. And so we're spending way more on Starbucks and cars and other things than we do on primary care in many cases. Mm. And it's funny to say, if I had a prior experience in one of my primary care groups where we had a membership fee, which was elective, and it was something like on average $20 a month. And people thought it was heretical. It was way too much. And then I just looked at what we were able to do for patients, better access, same day visits, more time with your patient, more frequent visits, more on-site services for the cost of three cups of coffee at Starbucks in a month. And so you ask yourself, there's something really inverted or upside down about how we think about things. So I think when you look at value-based care and primary care together, you get these benefits. Where is that 15 to 17% of the healthcare dollar going? It's going to smaller panels. Doctors or nurse practitioners or PAs would have 300, 400, 500, 600 patients on their panel versus over 2000. It's going to more frequent touch points phone visits, virtual care, in-office visits, four to six plus times a year versus one to two times a year. I know my mother as a senior sees her specialist way more often than she sees her PCP. Mm. It goes to other clinical resources. It goes to professionals like care management nurses, social workers, care coordinators, pharmacists, mental health professionals. Things that we know are important as people that we also try to access, we bring them under one roof. That's what that amount of investment can do. 
And then obviously the operations, the technology, the analytics support to do this type of care. And when you take that full cost of care stewardship or thinking about it to really look at the care that happens outside of your walls, to understand which specialists your patients are going to, which hospitals or ERs they're ending up with so that you can get aligned with them. So you can collaborate with them. So you can be in the flow of your patient's care and needs. So you can follow up with them. All of that takes time and effort and resources and operations and other things to really bring to bear. In the pandemic, Humana has shown and other groups have shown that groups that were under robust value-based care payment models very quickly flipped to telehealth and were able to sustain higher rates of telemedicine or virtual care because they were already going there. They weren't bound by the billable encounter in the office. They were already thinking, how do I build the programs and structures I need? to be closely following and engaging with my population and caring for them so that we, again, we can improve that health trajectory, avoid things that are preventable, deliver on their clinical needs as they show up. So at the end of the day, I think payment models are payment models. They're not care, they're not culture. And a lot of the value-based care payment model is aligned with good care, but it, it has some issues too. You know, if you take some of the constructs that exist too far, you could have a narrow network that's obstructively narrow. You could have utilization management procedures that are real barriers for clinicians or patients. Uh, you could too heavily disincentivize seeing specialists or being in the hospital. And sometimes you need to see a specialist and sometimes you need to be in the hospital. So it's really about a question of degree. I think the core value-based care payment is better aligned with comprehensive longitudinal care because we're all thinking long-term and we're all trying to serve people and change what's happening over time. But anything taken too far can have its cons as well. And I think the solution to that is to be really firmly grounded in a culture that's patient-centric, that's about mm -hmm. what's doing what's right for the person in front of you, and that being your unquestionable North Star. And for anybody just taking a step back and saying, what would I want for my loved one? Uh, which I hear our clinical leaders and business leaders saying quite often, and we use that to galvanize change when we find we need to go farther or do better or change what we're doing. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. And, you know, you talked about telehealth there for a minute. I wanted to discuss really fast how technology factors into all this. In 2021, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine put out a report in which the authors set out five main objectives for making high quality primary care available to all Americans. And one of those was to adapt technology for them specifically, it was talking about EHRs to better serve a primary care centered health system. And I know you weren't on that panel, but I was curious about your perspective on that objective, on that agenda. How do you see technology investments supporting or detracting from primary care investment overall? And, you know, how can payers better target their technology-related investments in primary care? Well, I think the report overall really sent a clarion call across the country about what needs to change to focus on primary care, invest in it, and change where we are. And so technology can be a, an amazing amplifier of great care. But right now, it's not really meeting that vision. Most EMRs are really built around billing and compliance and documentation, things that really stem from business and operational needs. I've yet to see an EMR that you put in front of a practicing clinician and they say, this is going to radically make my day easier and help me take better care of patients. Mm -hmm. And I think that needs to be set as our guidepost mm -hmm. for technology adaptation and innovation in healthcare, because right now 
we're overburdening our clinicians with tasks, with messages, with data points, with cumbersome workflows. It doesn't really represent how people think and need to clinically make decisions and how they act and how they want to see information about patients or their panels over time, or how an interdisciplinary care team, which we have the privilege of having in my group and other groups like ours, really works together where you have the power of a pharmacist, a behavioral health professional, a care manager, and others really partnering on the care of patients together. So I think we have a lot of opportunity. I think the recommendation makes a lot of sense. The question is, what's the bar going to be? And who is that technology innovation really going to be for? And there's some early efforts I've seen that are going in that direction about really being clinician, utility, ease of use, and impact oriented. And I would just encourage us to think about how we foster efforts like that so that 10 years from now, we're looking at something radically different. And we've we've made practicing much more sustainable than it is right now. And I think we all see the stats every day. I just saw one today from a White House advisory group from the Surgeon General, which said that the average clinician for every one hour of patient care, they spend two hours on the EMR. Wow. And the EMR is not the patient. Right. The EMR is not the patient's family member. The EMR is not the specialist that you're referring the patient to. The EMR is not your colleague that you could talk to and say, hey, can you help me think through this case? Or what would you do? Those other things are things that patients want us to do. They would much rather that we spend our time talking to people they trust or themselves or people involved in their care. And there's nothing more magical than what you can do for people once we liberate them to spend more of their time on those types of things. Payers are trying. Payers are trying to provide data, thinking about what technology solutions could be helpful to clinicians. I was recently at a value-based care forum that Dr. Schrank, our chief medical officer at Humana, and some of our Medicare plan executive leaders hosted with providers in our network who are going in this path of value-based care. And they were very interested in figuring out how to support getting the information about care gaps or medications or things that the plan might have better data on into the workflow of medical groups and practicing clinicians in a non-obstructive way. But I think we have a long way to go until that's really usable and much more comprehensive because as a practitioner, we all want all the data in one place. We can't really spend our time going to multiple screens or platforms. So I do think EHR transformation and innovation is absolutely at the center of making practice and comprehensive care much more sustainable and impactful for clinicians and for patients who essentially only now are starting to get visibility about information in their health record in a meaningful way. Thank you. Yeah, we could talk for a while on that question alone, but I do want to ask this last question because as a healthcare system, we're learning every day about major care disparities that exist. You'd mentioned earlier about how stark the disparities are in the U.S. healthcare system right now and for a long time. And every day, healthcare professionals are working toward and learning about achieving more equitable healthcare. But you know, how can we ensure that primary care investments are working in that direction as well, that they're pushing us closer to health equity and not farther away from it? I think the need to reduce health disparities is just paramount. And for better or worse, I think we've known about these disparities for a long time. I was remembering actually looking at an agency for healthcare research and quality report that they published annually about healthcare disparities. It's been published for over 20 years. 
Mm. I remember looking at it in medical school and seeing that outcomes for blood pressure management and hypertension or chronic kidney disease or maternal survival rates in pregnancy, just stunning, stunning, shocking differences in order of difference that's way bigger than most drugs that we approve or procedures we do. And so if we could bring ourselves to more equitable care, we will be saving lives and changing the health of the population. So I think it's important to think about why is now different. Maybe now is different because we've seen enough. We're not tolerant anymore of these racial or socioeconomic differences. And then the question is, what role can primary care play? What role can we all play? So obviously in models like ours, with more investment in primary care, If you bring more primary care to places that don't have good primary care access, you're probably going to places where there are disparities in care. And we see that in our own work in Centerwell and Conviva, where we go to underserved neighborhoods with lower income seniors who don't have a lot of resources. And we see even in Medicare overall, uh, Humana recently did a survey here, that more than 50% of seniors have at least one health-related social need, whether it's financial insecurity, food insecurity, housing instability, or other things. So these are common issues that if we go to where people are and bring better primary care to them, just like we need to bring better grocery stores and better access to many other things, that's a starting point. So we happen to be doing some of that in our group. And I'd say the question then becomes, how can you care for those patients differently? And I think bringing attention through data and metrics is going to be increasingly important. What are the disparities we see with our own patients? How do we increase our own awareness as clinicians and care team members so that we're not blind to our own bias? And then what do you do about it? And I think obviously with health-related social needs, there's more interventions that we can do around social needs or other aspects. We partner with community-based service organizations, but we need to go upstream at the community level. And so I still think there's a step that primary care as an engine of advocacy people who are caring for patients in their communities, some of whom are from those communities, and it's their own family members and neighbors, galvanizing action at the community level to think about what are those structural issues that have led to these generations of disparities. Because this didn't just happen this year or last Mm -hmm. year. We've got to look at poverty. We've got to look at racism. We've got to look at all these other things that play out into these social needs and differences in health outcomes. And so I think primary care at that last step of being ingrained in the community, focused on the population's health, deeply attuned to their patients, coming together with other organizations in those communities to say, we need to do something different about how we bank people, whether we provide access to bank accounts. We need to have more community housing support. We need to spend money on that. Those are things that I hope come out of this focus We can start with having the data, looking at the disparities, bringing it into the clinical environment, but ultimately we're one party in society. And so we should play our role, but we need to really focus on those longer term structural issues as well. Yeah, thank you so much. There's so much to talk about on this subject, but that's all we've got time (laughs) for today. But hopefully we can have you back sometime and dive in more into some of these aspects. But thank you so much, Dr. Garg, for coming on to Healthcare Strategies today and for sharing your perspective. Thank you, Kelsey. It's great to spend time together. Listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Feel free to reach out to me at kwadil at extelligentmedia.com. That's K-W-A-D-D-I-L-L at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts. 
You can also use that email to let us know if there are any health industry related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. And if you liked this episode and it sparked some thoughts for you, please head over to Apple and give us a few stars and a positive review. Thank you for listening. This has been an Intelligent Healthcare Media production.